if you haven't opened your Bibles yet to John chapter 5, uh, please do. Um, John 5, where we just read. Um, last uh, January, uh, not going to lie, was the worst season of sickness that me or my family has, has ever experienced in our lives. Um, I think we tallied it up, and out of like 31 days in the month of January, we were sick for 29 of them. It was like the weirdest month. So someone would have like stomach flu or something, and then they'd finally get healthy for a day, and it was kind of like we would just high five, and they'd say, all right, you're in now. And so the next person would be sick, and it was just this constant cycle of sickness. We had fevers and flus and bronchitis and stomach bugs. And uh, I know many of you uh, experienced a lot of the same types of things, you know. I, I talked to so many different people who I just felt like they were going through the same ringer that we were going through in the realm of sickness. Can we all disagree? Uh, sickness is awful, right? I mean, isn't sickness bad? I mean, anybody here like sickness? No? Okay. I was worried about you for a second, right? <laughs> sickness is awful. Like, even the smallest of colds. You wake up, and you have a cold, and you're like, I don't know if I can do today. You know, it's just kind of like your attitude towards life. When you have a cold, you're like, I'm, just, I'm done, right? Sickness is the worst. And, I mean, think about it. Like, we even have Netflix now, okay? Like, when you're sick, you can just watch Netflix or something. I wonder what, like, the pioneer people did. You know, like, when they were sick, their lives just been even worse, right? Like, sickness is bad for us, but historically, even, like, sickness overall is just, it's just terrible, right? Like, whenever you are sick... Or when somebody that you love is sick, you would probably agree all you want in life is just to feel better. That's all you're thinking about. You're like, oh man, I just want to, to feel better. All you want is healing in those moments. It weighs on you. It wears on you. It's like a constant cloud that's hanging over your head. And you long for this like new day where, where that sickness is just gone, right? Sickness is the worst. And when we are sick, or when we know someone who is sick, we all long for healing. But, but greater than any need that we have in physical healing, though, our spiritual need for healing is even greater. Guys, sin is an eternally life-threatening sickness that only Jesus can heal. It's a life-threatening sickness that only Jesus can heal. Wow. There we go. I think Jesus did that too. Okay. And this morning, we see in this fourth sign of Jesus here in John's gospel that healing is held out in the hand of Jesus. It's held out in his hand. And as was just read for us, we see this very needy man who's physically healed, okay? But there's so much more that's happening than just a physical healing in this story because we see Jesus chases down this man after he's healed in the temple. And when he meets the guy in the temple, he reveals to him and he reveals to all of us this morning that he really wants to heal not just him physically, but he wants to heal this guy's, this guy's sin problem. He wants to heal this man's brokenness that he has in his soul. So in all actuality, when you read this story, if you look at it, the physical healing is just a foreshadowing of what the type of healing that Jesus really wants to bring to this man's life, and he doesn't really seem to get it. He doesn't seem to get it. So in all actuality, the story isn't really a recipe for us for how Jesus always performs physical healings, okay? But it does show us how we experience deeper healing that God holds out to us in Christ. 
And so if you grabbed your paper notes on your way in, you'll see where we're headed on the back of your sheet. We see the types of people that Jesus draws near to in this story. We see this question that Jesus offers us, and we see the healing that Jesus brings us. So first, we see who Jesus draws near to. Let's look again in verse 1 of chapter 5. This is what it reads. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So our text starts by saying, after this, which is a reference to this indefinite passing of time after Jesus heals the official son, which we looked at last week. And so up to actually a year and a half has passed from that moment we looked at a couple of weeks ago where Jesus went to Jerusalem and he flipped over tables and he got really upset and he yelled at the pigeon people. Remember that? And he cleansed the temple, right? A year and a half has gone by. And so here we have Jesus' second out of three total trips that he makes to Jerusalem in his earthly ministry, okay? And he's coming for a feast, and we don't know what feast he's coming for, which normally when you see a feast mentioned, there's an attachment, a title to it. It tells you what it is that people are actually going to feast about, okay? And that's usually really important when you see the specific feast that the Bible is talking about, because whatever's happening around that story is usually somehow connected to that, that feast or that festival, okay? But here, we just see that it's a feast, and we don't know Why? But all we do know is that because of it, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And so this sign of Jesus about to take place, it's going to take place near the Sheep Gate, okay, which is near this pool of Bethesda, which Bethesda in Hebrew means house of mercy, okay? I brought you a um, a picture this morning because this exact site was excavated in the 19th century. And uh, I brought the picture because I'm a visual person, okay? Pictures really help me, so hopefully they help you a little bit. But what I want you to hopefully see here is is not that um, I'm going to go through this and talk to you all about archaeology this morning. I'm not going to do that. I'll spare you. I'll make a fool of myself. But I want you to realize this is a real place where real people hung out by and Jesus walked into and did a real miraculous healing, a real sign, Okay? And so archaeologists found that this place was comprised of two pools. It was surrounded by four column colonnades with a fifth right down the middle, which you see it right there, just like John describes. And you can leave this up just for a second here, Matt, but, but this place is, this, in this picture, right, it's a mess. Right, you can barely envision it, okay? I could have put it up for you one of those caricatured cartoons about this, but this is a little more legit, right? It's a mess in this picture, but I want you to imagine it then. I want you to imagine it then. This pool would have been surrounded by probably hundreds of people who are suffering from all sorts of physical ailments. What what does John list here? Invalids, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people, right? You you would have been walking into a very tragic scene if if you waltzed into this place. And these people's superstition was that an angel would come and would stir the waters and whoever could somehow get in the water first would be healed. Now, I'm not sure if you noticed, but there's no verse four. I said one through four, but there's no verse four. Did anybody catch that? I'm not good at math, but I noticed it, okay? And what you'll notice is there's no verse four in your Bible. There's probably uh, something that points to a footnote at the bottom. You should have a footnote 
uh, this verse isn't in your Bible because it's a footnote because it was added later. So the earliest manuscripts we have about this account, this wasn't there, but was added later probably by scribes who are trying to describe for you, they're trying to communicate to you right now the superstition of this day, that what's going on here. And you see the superstition of the day in verse 7 where the man talks about this very thing. That the, the, the reason is that, that most people believe that an angel would come down, stir the waters, you jump in, it was a miracle pool, right? And people would be healed. But a lot of other people understood that this pool was also fed by subterranean springs that would stir the waters at different times. And so just get this picture. People are, are sitting underneath these colonnades in the shade, hopefully, waiting for the spring to ripple again because they believed it had healing power. Okay? I, w- I want you to realize this is no small thing that Jesus walked into this setting. Okay? This was a place where the upper class, where, where people who were concerned about ritual purity, they would have avoided it at all cost. These people that would hang around this pool, they were dirty people. They were desperate people. They were destitute people. This, this would have been a scene that would be difficult for you to look at, okay? It probably smelled horribly, honestly. Nothing about this place would have been comfortable to you. It wasn't a place that most people would go then, and it definitely would not be a place that you'd want to go to now. So why would Jesus go there? Why would Jesus go to this place? What brought Jesus here? Well, the answer is that Jesus consistently drew near to those who were in need. Jesus consistently drew near towards people who were in need. Regardless of what other people thought about him, regardless of the criticism that might come his way, regardless of what might actually happen to him by being near those people, he drew near to people in need. And guys, he draws near to those this morning who know that they are in need. Well, let's just say, okay, that you invited me uh, to go hang out with you and some other people at your house, okay? Uh, We've been meaning to make this happen. We finally make it happen, right? So I'm excited to hang out with you. So I get dressed up. I get all, you know, freshly showered. I put some deodorant on for you, okay? I like iron my clothes. I get pretty dressed up. I don't know why I'm getting dressed up, to be honest with you. I guess I'm trying to impress you or something, all right? So I'm getting dressed up, all right? I roll over to your house to hang out. You open the door, you're like, hey, I'm glad you're here. We're just about ready to get started. You take me through your house, out to your, 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 back, you know, your backyard, and I'm like, okay, I guess we're hanging out here on the deck. We're going to have some drinks or something. We're going to hang out, and all of a sudden, I go back there, and I realize that's not what we're doing. We're going to put in a new sprinkler system for you, all right? And so, I mean, just get the scene, right? Okay, and again, this is in Corvallis, so I'm sure it's a really bleak, overcast, wet, muddy sort of day, Okay. Remember, I'm dressed up, I'm, I'm feeling clean. What do you think is the first thing that's going to go through my mind, besides the fact that we need to work on our communication skills? What do you think is the first thing that's going to go through my mind? Do you have a guess? Right. I'm going to get dirty. Right, that's the first thing I'm going to think about, is that, like, I, I'm going to get all dirty, right? I'm not going to get down and dirty. Why? Because of, of what's going to happen to me. I'm clean. I'm going to get dirty by nature of helping you. The, the opposite of this is completely true. If I had been working in my yard all day, 
in the mud doing my thing, punching points on my man card all day long. And you're like, hey, let's go hang out. And I was like, I don't even care how I look. I'm just going to go over and hang out with this guy. And you bring me to your backyard and like we're putting in a sprinkler system. What's my response going to be? Let's do it, right? I don't know if you want me to help you with the sprinkler system, but nonetheless, I'll be excited to help you. I'll be like, let's do it. Why? Because I'm already dirty. Like I'm not going to be thinking about getting dirty. I'm already dirty. See, one of our big problems as the church is that when it comes to loving sacrificially, when it comes to ministering to people in need, we have this perception of ourselves that we are metaphorically dressed up and ready to impress. And and therefore, connecting with people in real ways that we perceive as messy or dirty, what does that do? It causes our walls to go up. Why? Because we're afraid that that metaphorical dirt is going to get on our nice, clean, suburbia life. I mean, let's be very real and practical here. Let's be really real with you. As as you walked by um, the peacock here this morning, you know, or if you strolled through Central Park in downtown Corvallis this week, right, as you walk by people that you know are, are very much in need, how did you feel? And why did you feel that way? And to be clear, when I say need, we're not just talking about poverty. We're not just talking about physical appearance. We're talking about people with deeply broken hearts and issues that they're wrestling with, or maybe they're not even wrestling with it, okay? And if you're someone who doesn't see yourself as deeply broken as well or with heart issues, and your goal in life is to try and maintain a very clean and peaceful and middle-class sort of life, then you won't be willing to engage with, with others, that are not only just looking differently than you or smelling differently than you, but you won't be willing to engage with people that are just hurting at all. Because when you draw near to needy people who are walking through tough stuff in life, that metaphorical dirt is going to land on some of your clean clothes. Isn't this fascinating? Okay? This was the place that people would avoid at all costs. And here, you have the most significant, the most pure, the most righteous human being to ever walk the face of the earth, Jesus, and he is drawing near to the needy. Guys, time and time again, this is who Jesus draws near to. He even says to religious people in the Gospels, he says, I didn't come for people who have this misunderstanding or this misperception that they're healthy. He says, I came for people who have a clear perspective that they are sick. That's essentially what Jesus says to these religious people in the gospel's accounts. And so if you are needy this morning, if you realize that you are needy, if you know that you have brokenness in your life, if you have shame this morning, or if you have guilt this morning, or this darkness that seems to hover over you as a cloud this morning, guys, the story is for you. It's for you. Because you're just the kind of person that Jesus draws near to. And Jesus draws near to one man in particular. And when he draws near to him, he offers him a question. And we see this in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew, he knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir... I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. 
So Jesus focuses his attention on a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. This guy lived and suffered longer than most people lived in a lifespan during this, this time, okay? The average lifespan was 40 years in Jesus' day. This guy was an invalid for 38 years. We're not told it was even from birth. So this guy's probably getting the very end of his entire life. And Jesus asks him a question that seems like a really odd question probably, especially since Jesus knows he's been an invalid for 38 years. We're not told how Jesus knows this. We don't think that someone like gave Jesus this information. This is actually a pattern that you're seeing if you've read the Gospel of John before. Because John tells us at the very beginning of John's Gospel how Jesus approaches this man named Nathaniel and he knows Nathaniel's name and it like blows Nathaniel's mind, okay? And then uh, just a chapter right before this, he goes to this woman who's at the well and he knows everything about her and it blows her mind, okay? So Jesus knows things about people. Like he understands these situations as he's walking into them. But he singles out this guy and he walks up to him and he asks him a question. And what was his question? It's the title of this sermon. Do you want to be healed? I mean, could you imagine if I came to you this morning and you were in a wheelchair your entire life and I said, do you want to be healed? I mean, that seems like an odd question at minimum and probably an insulting question to most anybody else, right? I mean, there's just questions in life that you don't ask people, you know? We all know this. There's questions you don't ask people. You never ask somebody, how much money do you make, all right? Unless you're in college and you're like, ask away. I don't really care, right? I make none, <laughs> right? But if you have a job, right, people don't go, how much are you making, right? That's just an Inappropriate question. You don't ask that question. Or you don't walk up to someone and say, how much weight have you gained lately? Right? You don't ask that question. Or guys, you know that you, ne hopefully you know this, you never ask a woman under any circumstance, in any situation, for any reason, ever, 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 when her baby is due. You never do that. Right? I don't care if she's nine months pregnant and she is in labor in front of your eyes. You don't ask these sorts of questions, okay? But you also, you never ask a person who's been sick and paralyzed their entire life if they wish that they could be healed. That just seems like an inappropriate question, right? So on the surface, Jesus' question seems like an inappropriate one. I mean, wouldn't you just assume? I mean, he's hanging out near a pool that he believes can heal him. But, but just like in every situation that we've already seen in this series in John, when Jesus says something or asks something of another person that seems really inappropriate or seems sort of jarring a little bit, you need to press into that because it's normally, it's usually the whole point of what he's getting at. And it's true for us in this passage as well. You see, in reality, it's an important question. It's a really relevant question because Jesus isn't saying to him, are you coming to this pool to be healed? It's not what he's asking him. It's a much deeper question. He's asking him, do you still have hope of healing? He's asking him, do you really want new life? Do you, do you hope for it? Or are you just happy eking out your life the way that it is? He's kind of asking him, do you really want things to change? Is that what you want? Do you have a genuine desire for it? A commentator named J.A. Finley uh, commented on this, which is really helpful. And he said, a person like this man, who had been lame or paralyzed for his entire life, I mean, could, could earn a very good living, actually. They could earn a very good living by begging. And so they could make good and comfortable money by begging and sitting in the shade. And this is what their life would be like. They could look out 
And see, in the blazing hot sun, people laboring away under that sun for their wages. And so the concept for a lot of people of getting well might not have been as simple of a question as you might think it would have been. This question was a very relevant question for this man, and it's very relevant for us too. I mean, we often like the idea of healing until we realize what it'll cost us. Uh, Kent Hughes once wrote, Christ and what he offers looks so delicious from a distance, but up close it can appear in a completely different light. What would that completely different light be? Well, if you read in, in Mark chapter eight, Jesus said to the people who are trying to follow him, he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross daily to do so. It's, it's, it's a death wish, right? It's dying to self daily. He says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospels will save it. You see, when we realize that freedom from sin means slavery to Christ, do we really want to be healed? We, we often like the idea of Jesus redeeming us, but do we like the idea of Jesus being the Lord over our lives? And we realize that salvation means surrender, that following means taking a cross and denying self. When we realize this, we often don't want to be healed because it means giving authority to Jesus. We like him redeeming us, but not ruling us. Uh, for 10 years of my life, uh, I severely struggled uh, with addiction. And I'm not saying I'm going to probably forever be in the clear. I'm smart enough and aware enough to know that it can creep back in very easily. But, but I would often come to very dark, dark moments of my life or places in my life, and I was like, man, I need help badly. Uh, and I'd be, I'll be honest with you, when I got to those places, uh, it wasn't just like, I need help, I'm going to go for it. I would go, I need help, but then these other questions would pop into my head, and there would be questions like, how am I going to socialize with people? I mean, all I've ever known is socializing with people on a certain substance. Or I'd be like, how am I ever going to feel good again? Because the only thing that ever made me feel good was this substance. I'd be like, how am I going to have fun? Because the only way I've ever had fun is by abusing this substance. But what I was really wrestling with was this question, do I really want to be healed? I mean, do I really want to be healed? I mean, you don't have to be a drug addict to feel that struggle. There might be a relationship that you're in, and you know that you shouldn't be in this relationship right now. But you're, you're asking yourself, you're struggling with this question, well, what if I end up alone? If I break up with this person, what if no one else will take me someday? You know, or maybe you're struggling in life with wanting just to control everything, and you're becoming more aware of that. But you're asking yourself, the, the rub for you is, well, what if things don't really go the way that I know they should go? Is that okay? Can I handle that? Or maybe you have a dream for your life, and you're really scared of opening up your hands of this dream and laying it at the feet of Jesus, and what you're thinking is, what if I don't become the person that I've always dreamt of becoming? Or what if I become the person that I never wanted to become? I mean, every single one of those struggles, and countless more, they're all wrestling with this question, do you want to be healed? Do you really want to? Are you open to a different life? It's a healed life for sure. It's definitely a, a free life, but it's a different life. See, Jesus' question is a good one. Do you genuinely desire to be healed? 
Do you want to walk away from sin and surrender your life to Jesus? Do you really want to be free from your sin or do you want to be free from the consequences of your sin? Do you really want your soul healed this morning or do you just want it medicated? See, healing is held out in the hand of Jesus, guys, and it demands a genuine desire. But it also demands an admission of desperate need. We see this in verse 7. Jesus asks this man, do you want to be healed? And what is his response? Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. See, Jesus is forcing this man to acknowledge his perceived obstacle to being healed. He, he can't heal himself. He realizes that. He, and no one else can help him. He can't get there. And he has no friends. And by the way, the water isn't magical. He's dependent. He needs help. He needed to see that. And, and sometimes you need to see more clearly a, a different situation. You need to see it from a different perspective or a different angle to see your situation more accurately. And what Jesus is doing to this man, he's trying to do that. He's trying to give him a different perspective. He's trying to ask him from a different angle. And what he's getting at here in verse 7, what Jesus is and what we need to see this morning is that you won't seek Jesus' healing help in your life if you don't know that you need it. You will never seek Jesus' healing help in your life if you don't even know that you need it. See, what you see is a man who's tried to be healed on his own time and time again, and he's failed. And now he's fatigued. He's actually blaming other people. He's losing hope. This guy's tried to heal himself. He's working for it, but he needs to see that he can't do it. He is utterly dependent on someone else healing him. Guys, this is why uh, downplaying our sin or trying to justify it is just so dangerous. This is the reality. The reality is that we can't justify ourselves to God. So if you see your need for healing and you need to realize then your dependence on Jesus to provide you with that healing. I mean, from start to finish, the testimony of God's word is that you cannot earn God's forgiveness. That's like not a thing in the Bible. That's just really not. So when Jesus offers you this question this morning, this offer of healing, you not only need to have a genuine desire for it, but you need to admit your dependence upon Jesus for it. And that's what this man realizes. So do you see your need? Do you want to be healed? Do you really want life to change? Or are you wanting to be free from sin so you can live fully for Jesus, okay? So if so, we see that Jesus comes through. He comes through. He brings the healing. Look in verse 8. Jesus said to them, to him, not everybody. That'd be a different story. Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. At once, at once, the man who has been lying on his back for 38 years was healed. And he took up his bed and he walked. Now, some of you hear that story right there, and you're yawning, okay? I'm not, I'm, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're yawning because you're really tired. I know it's early, okay? But you're yawning, and I don't mean yawning physically. I mean you're kind of yawning in your heart a little bit, right? You're like, oh, yeah, there goes Jesus. 
doing what he do all the time, right? I mean, do you see this? Do you see what just happened? This is crazy. 38 years healed on the spot. I mean, let your mind, like, linger in that. Like, let it wander into this story. Let your eyes, like, imagine yourself being a, a witness of this happening. Right? This is a real place with real people, and Jesus really walked the earth and really did this. If you walked out on the street this morning and saw that, I would, I would bet that there'd be some sense of awe that would flood over you. Right? And so, quickly, I want us to see these two traits that distinguish the healing that Jesus brings, okay? The two traits that, that his healing brings, because his healing does come. Jesus brings healing in a situation, and the first thing you see in the story is that Jesus' healing is gracious. It's very gracious. Just a simple observation. Do you know this man, he didn't go to Jesus. Jesus came to this man. Do you notice that? And the reason went to this, Jesus went to this particular man was inexplicable, Okay? He just chose this guy. He just went to him and chose this man. It's not like everybody laying around this pool, to the best of my knowledge, had this ongoing competition, and whoever won the competition got five minutes with Jesus. And so Jesus is like, well, I got to go meet the winner of this contest, and he shows up and meets this man. Obviously, no, that's not at all what's happening in this story. The man did nothing. I mean, he didn't even know who Jesus was, guys. He calls him sir. Right? And, and after he's even healed, after he's healed, when these crotchety religious leaders ask him who healed him, he still doesn't even know. He didn't even get the guy's name. Okay? No thank you, no gratitude. In fact, he ends up blaming Jesus for making him commit a sin that wasn't even a sin. These people had built up all these man-made rules and tried to add rules to the Bible, and that guy broke one of those man-made rules. And so these crotchety religious leaders are getting upset about it. And the guy goes, you know what? Jesus did it, right? He's the one who told me to do it, right? There was nothing that begged Jesus' favor on this person. Jesus' approach is utterly by grace. He didn't seek Jesus. His faith and devotion is even in question in this story. And he actually betrays him at the end of it. Yet Jesus still heals him. What a merciful Savior. He still heals him. And in many respects, this picture of this man is a picture of us. We don't naturally seek God. He seeks us. I mean, this is the consistent message of Scripture that even though we are crippled by sin, we don't ask Jesus for healing. Instead, we try and fix it ourselves through various methods of, methods of uh, self-help and self-improvement. And so often, Jesus comes to us but we don't always even respond to him with, with gratitude. We just kind of go away like this man. And maybe even like this man, you might even turn on Jesus at some point. This healing and true soul healing is an act of grace. And it's, it's a miracle. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he's retired now. He said this once. He said, if the gospel is grace alone, then every conversion is a miracle. If the gospel is grace alone, which it is, if you're wondering, then every conversion is a miracle. It's a miracle. He's gracious. But secondly, it's miraculously thorough, because what does Jesus say? Get up. 
In many places, Jesus will touch somebody and heal them. We'll see that here next week, right? But, but here, Jesus just says, get up. I mean, Jesus, even in one account in the stories, he grabs the hand of a dead girl and he says to her, literally, little girl, it's time to wake up. And she wakes up. She comes back to life. But here, he just says, get up. He doesn't say, hey, get up and help him up like you do in an athletic event, you know, in a football game or something like that. He doesn't even do that. He doesn't even help the guy up. He just says, get up. He speaks, and it comes true. Just by the power of his word, the man is healed. I mean, think about how amazing this is. I mean, think about just being in bed for a week. Like last January, I had bronchitis. I was in bed for a week, right? I, even, I didn't even want to get out of bed ever. When I did, what, what, what do you think happened? I, I would walk downstairs. I'd walk around for a few minutes and try to feel like a normal person. I eventually go, God, oh, I'm going to sit down, right? You just kind of feel really tired all the time and, and lazy if you've been in bed for any length of time like that, right? Or you just imagine, just just. You know, you go flying on a, a long flight on a plane, right? What happens? You get off that plane. Whoever has gone on a long flight on a plane and got off the plane and been like, yeah, I'm ready to go, right? Nobody feels that way. Everyone's like, I need a shower. I don't know why. I'm not dirty, I don't think, but I need a shower. I need to like regroup. I need a nap maybe, but I just kind of nap the whole time, right? You just, you get up off a plane, you don't feel like energized at all. Or you lay down on a couch and watch a movie, a long movie, like Lord of the Rings or something, for three hours. You wake up, you're like stretching and staggering a little bit, right? And then you're ready to go to bed, correct? Right? You, you, it's, it's, we sit down for any length of time. We wake up, we don't even feel energized. We don't feel thoroughly ready for the moment. But this guy has been laying down for 38 years. Jesus speaks two words. He's ready to go. Fully ready. You'd expect him to be stumbling at least, but you don't see that. Jesus never does anything halfway. It's always thorough. When Jesus heals, you see it's not halfway. It doesn't need to take time. It doesn't need a process to it. It's thorough. It's finished. Um, we, me and my wife, we just uh, redid uh, uh, all the new, floor, or new floors in our bathrooms. Okay, We finally got new floors in our bathroom. And let me tell you, when it came time to do that, when we were like, all right, we're gonna, we can budget for this, we can buy the materials, we can do the floors, there wasn't a thought that came across my mind or my wife's mind that's like, my husband will do this, okay? That didn't even pop up for a second, right? Because we all are very aware with my track record now as a handyman that that would just be disastrous. It would be a waste of resources. So what would happen is if I did the floors in my own house, and I said, hey, I just redid the floors, come check them out. You would go in there and you go, oh yeah, they are new, right? They are different. I see that they're not the same. But you're like, what? Did you like get lazy? Like what happened, right? You, you cut all these corners, right? You did it a halfway job, okay? So luckily that's not what we did. We hired Zach Lundy, right? Zach of all trades, awesome guy in this church somewhere, right? Zach's a great member of this church. And uh, he came and did them. And so Zach did our floors. He did an amazing job. He did a thorough job. If you went and saw my floors, you're like, oh, those are new. Those are different. Those are thorough. Those are well done. Even my father-in-law, who's the most meticulous man when it comes to these things, looked at our floors, Zach, and said, wow, that's a good job. So A plus to you, man, right? Right? Jesus' miraculous work is like Zach's. It's not like mine. It's thorough. And it's deep. 
And what Jesus is showing us in this thoroughness of his healing is that he's really offering us a picture of what he does when he heals your soul. It's thorough. See, shortly after this healing, people would seek to kill Jesus and put an end to his life. And they eventually do. They crucify him. But little did they realize that in crucifying Jesus, they were putting not an end to him, but they were watching Jesus work the greatest miracle. But that miracle wasn't flashy. That miracle wasn't much to look at. In fact, you'd be sick to your stomach as you watched Jesus work his greatest miracle on the cross. But on that cross, Jesus cried out a miraculous word, thoroughness. And he speaks that word over you this morning. Do you know the words? He says, it is finished. It's not halfway. You don't go staggering. It's thorough. It's finished. See, the healing you could never create on your own, Jesus created it on the cross. He thoroughly worked the job of salvation for you. He paid for every sin that you'd ever committed and every sin that you ever will commit in the future. The miracle is done. It's thorough and it was fully realized when he defeated death and victoriously walked out of his grave three days later. And now, guys, Jesus comes to you this morning with scars on his hands and his feet, and he holds out a question to you, and he asks you, do you want to be healed? He says to you this morning, do you want to be healed? He says to you this morning, I am the true, and I am the better pool. I am the final pool. I am the only pool that you will ever need. See, for all of us, we have been to many pools in our lives. We've gone to a whole host of them. It might be your career, it might be different relationships, it might be marriage, it might be your children, it might be a sense of accomplishment, and you go back to these pools again and again and again and again, looking for that fleeting moment of bubbling water only to feel despair because someone else seems to get there before you. And what it means to be a Christian and to see that Jesus is as he truly is, that he is the true and better pool, that he really can bring total, thorough healing to your soul, is to look at him this morning and say, I'm done with those other pools. As comfortable and as reassuring as those may have been in my life, even though I feel like I want to go back to them and I'm prone to wander to them, I found my true healing in Jesus, and I will daily return to his pool that makes me new. See, soul healing is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. And he is still performing it today. He might be performing it this morning in your heart. And he heals those who know they are in need. He heals those who have been given a genuine desire. And he heals you by his grace. And he does it thoroughly. So I'll ask you one more time. Do you want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? It's not a silly question. Father, I do want to ask this morning that you would come, you would awaken us, that you would open our eyes to how beautiful and compelling and sufficient Jesus is for us. We don't need anyone else. We 